Hey, and welcome to episode 7 of the Beer and Bible Podcast. I'm Paul. I'm Dan. And we have a special guest with us this We're recording on a Saturday afternoon, actually. Um, His name is Dad, to me, um, (laughs) but he goes by Roger Holford to everybody else, so welcome. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Um, If you have problems understanding me, I'll get Paul to translate. Obviously, I come from the other side of the Atlantic, so... So some of my words <laughs> might be a little different. So, yeah. <laughs> so if you couldn't tell by the accent, um, it's British, not Australian or New Zealand or... Mid-Atlantic. Mid-Atlantic? Boy, yeah. Okay. Um, and he's with us today because we are going to be talking to him about the ministry that he does in Bolivia, South America called Operation Restoration that he's been doing for 26 years? 28. 28 years. Mm-hmm. So a lifetime. Well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, half mine. Maybe. Half of you. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so, to 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 clarify, then we'll ask set up a couple of questions for you. Where in the Dickens is Bolivia? Well, Bolivia is right in the heart of the South American continent. It's a landlocked country. In the centre, there, surrounded by Brazil, Peru, Chile, Argentina, Paraguay. Um, it uh, was the poorest country in South America, but now probably isn't. I think Venezuela has captured that privilege recently with its difficulties it's having economically and politi- politically. Um, and it's known as the most indigenous of the nations in, in South America as far as population as well. It's uh, a small population of about 11 million um, with a geography which is uh, four times the size of my little island on the other side of the Atlantic. So uh, it's quite big uh, compared to the UK with a small population. So a lot of open wilderness. Very remote, yeah. yeah things can disappear quite easily there and have done <laughs> in the past. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of unspoilt forest and, and jungle in the north. Hmm. We have mountains, the Andes, up to 21,000 feet. Uh, we've got Amazon jungle in the north. We've got uh, subtropical plains in the east, and we kind of have green, fertile vineyards in the south. So a bit of everything except coast and sea. <laughs> no so, coast yeah, and no sea. beach. <clears throat> There's an interesting thing happening uh, in Bolivia right now that you were just telling us about with, where they're fighting for their rights to get some coast back. Yeah, they lost their coast uh, to Chile um, a century and a bit ago, and they've just been presenting uh, their case to the International Court of Mm -hmm. Justice in The Hague uh, to try and get negotiations reopened uh, for Mm -hmm. getting kind of sovereign access to the sea as a trade route, Mm -hmm. Uh, because obviously it's it's very difficult for Bolivia to do international trade if you've got to pay tariffs just across another country, either east or west. Um, So they're looking to try and recover that. Um, There's been several attempts to to do that historically, even in the last 20 or 30 years, but uh, it always ends in in rejection from <laughs> Chile and uh, the need to start again. So so what is their leading export then? What do they... These are questions we haven't prepped in for, by the way. Uh, well, other than their illegal export of Which cocaine. cocaine. Yeah, <laughs> cocaine is there, recognised as probably the second or third largest producer of cocaine. Um, their main legal export at the moment is... Uh, natural gas, okay. uh, which they export to most of their neighbours, um, which in the heyday of uh, of the oil industry, when 
you know, uh, oil was going for $150 a barrel. They were doing very, very well. But because of the slump in the oil industry, it's down to about $65 a barrel now. <clears throat> it's uh, hit the economy quite hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've gone from um, an economic surplus to an economic deficit, I think, in just in the last couple of years. And it's likely to deepen. Wow. So Any of us in America don't really understand what it's like to be landlocked to not be able to trade freely. Like, that's just something that you don't think about. But countries that can export their goods are going to be better off financially than somebody that's stuck and has to travel by truck or by rail or anything else. You're talking about a good by truck. You're talking about two full days to either the east or or the west coast of of the continent to get to a port. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Makes it very expensive to export your goods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely, because you've got to go. If you go west, you're going up over the Andes and down uh, to to Arica or Iquique to get it out through Chile. Mm-hmm. Or if you're going to Brazil, well, um, you've done that trip, I think. Did no, you? I didn't no, you didn't do that. No, I did no. Chile. But it's uh, a two day train drive right across to the coast again. So, wow. yeah, it's a long way. So. You went, you moved to Bolivia, South America, with your family in 1990. Mm-hmm. I should have done the math earlier. That would have made sense. 28 years. But <laughs> <laughs> what? Why? What? What? What was the purpose? Well, we, um, your mother, Aisha, yeah. my wife, and I had sensed uh, God's calling on our lives to to do something about the situation of street children in Latin America back in the kind of early to mid 80s through through kind of TV documentaries and things like that. What were you doing before that? I was a London police officer pounding the streets of London. With the hat and everything, right? Yeah, the funny shaped head and the fast cars. Constable. Stick, no gun. Yes, all that. No gun. (laughs) (laughs) No gun. No stick. Police officers don't have to carry weapons? Uh, No. Or guns even? Oh, wow. Well, stick. Stick, yeah. Stick, yeah. yeah. Which is even... Shorter than the nightsticks they carry here. Yeah. Literally about. <laughs> not yes, even the length of your forearm. No, not even. No, wow. very short. So. But, uh, yeah, that was my, I call that my previous life. Your previous life. <laughs> <laughs> but we began to sense the Lord's calling on our lives to work with street children in Latin America. And we began in the 80s probably by just writing a few checks to ministries in places like Guatemala and Mexico, Colombia, <clears throat> we knew there were needs. But we, after a while, we really came to understand that God wanted a little more than that. So um, in 88, we got involved with uh, Youth with a Mission, YWAM, did our training in Scotland with you. We lived in a castle. two sisters lived in a castle. Yeah, yeah. you did. <laughs> Uh, we did our, our first training uh, in Scotland and then did an outreach in Germany. Um, he got a speeding ticket. No, you ran a red light in Germany I did, driving a bus. In a minibus, yeah, yeah. I did. Photo are. evidence somewhere. Yeah. Does a German police officer sound as angry as they do in the movies? I didn't see a German police officer, <laughs> I just saw a bill. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they got you on camera? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was just a fine. <laughs> Um, and then we did our leadership training as well in Scotland with outreach in Portugal, which mm-hmm. was kind of a little bit of uh, Latin influence when we went down to Portugal. We spent a couple of months there at the end of 89 and then went for one year initially to Bolivia to investigate the situation with street children. To, we went down in January 1990. 
uh, just to see if that was where the Lord wanted us to be. So we arrived in Santa Cruz uh, on the 23rd of January 1990, still stamped in my passport that day. And uh, we spent that year kind of learning the language, getting to know the culture, cooking. Very warm there yeah. compared to the UK. <laughs> we went from five, to five degrees C, which would be, what, I don't know, 30, 30, 38 yeah. um, to 90-something in a day. Does the, the equator there, run so. right through Bolivia or no. is it just north of it? Yeah, it's north. We're 18 okay. degrees south of the okay. equator, actually. So, But it's going to be warm but year it's round. very warm, yeah. We have two seasons. We call them hot and hotter. So, yeah. <laughs> So it's winter there now, or getting towards the winter, fall. Yeah, yeah, in the 70s. In the yeah. 70s in winter. Oh, wow. Do you yeah. guys have a rain season or anything? Yeah, like that? that's yeah. summer is the rainy season when it's kind of in the 90s and 85, 90% humidity and, yeah, very, very hot and sticky and, yeah, yes, super warm. But we don't have consistent kind of rain and it's a very unstable climate which is very difficult for agriculture there because sometimes you, the rainy season doesn't really happen, other years there's too much. and So those that work in agriculture really <coughs> struggle. So, mm. yeah. So, yeah, so you, so you took us there in 1990, my, my mother and my two sisters. Mm-hmm. And then what made you stay then? You said you are doing some research while you were there. Well, we got to... Um, get out a little bit onto the streets and see the reality of the needs there, find out what kind of ministries were already working there and what was happening. And we we saw there was a massive gap um, Mm. that society and the authorities basically wrote off uh, any kids that were teenagers. They were kind of lost causes because they were already on drugs, they were stealing, they were in prostitution and in crime. And everybody treat, treated them as lost causes. The the police would mistreat them, beat them, and drive them out of town and dump them or and do all sorts of uh, other abuses uh, to the kids. Um, the younger ones than that were usually catered for by children's homes and other ministries, but nobody wanted to take on the challenge of teenagers. So... We really sensed that that was where our call was going to be. So uh, at the end of 1990, we decided to go back to the UK, raise our support to then return and start up um, the work of Operation Restoration. And we started just working on the streets. We had no homes. um, And we used to try and get the youngsters into other centres or homes to get through the drugs or whatever, homes or centres that would actually take them. Many of them wouldn't. Um, so eventually we found the resources to have our own centres and our own homes for boys, girls and for older ones and a reception house and so on. So So you guys kind of started your ministry being advocates more than having any resources of your own. Yeah, yeah, we didn't have any resources, just our own personal support and and, uh, dragging a few volunteers along with (laughs) us to the streets Mm and um, yeah, and really just building from there. So what would you do on the streets? Well, we used to take out uh, a flask of coffee and a, a huge bag of bread and just go out and share uh, coffee or sometimes a, a cool drink in the in the summer and bread and just sit, share with the kids, pray with them, talk to them, find out what their needs were, access medical help if they needed it, take out a first aid kit as well and and just discover why they were there, what was happening in their lives and how 
we could make a difference. And without the homes, it was really quite difficult because our influence was kind of a few hours a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rest of the time, they were surviving through their usual means. Um, so we recognised the need to, to really have the homes to get them out of there and, and invest in their lives 24-7. And uh, that's where we're at now for those that take that opportunity. Still mm-hmm. not easy because they're very attached to their drugs and and getting them through that initial withdrawal and off the streets is, is pretty tough. Used to be just glue, but now they're on crack cocaine from the age of about eight, which makes life a little more challenging for us yeah, and for insane. them to, to overcome those addictions. So, yeah. How do they get introduced so young, just because it's in the house already with their parents? It's or? usually around, yeah. Very often it's uh, we're dealing with second-generation uh, youngsters that are on the streets and... The availability in Santa Cruz, obviously, is a, a hub where uh, the the drugs have all be, already been manufactured in rural areas, in mm-hmm. hidden places in the jungle, and it comes through Santa Cruz on its way out through Brazil, generally. Um, so there's always a residual amount that is relatively accessible economically to the local population before it goes off to Europe, generally. Okay. Um, Santa Cruz is where your home base is then for your yeah. ministry? Yeah, yeah. It's, mm. a, it's one of the fastest growing cities in South America. It's grown <clears> from 700,000 to about 2.2 million in the time oh, we've wow. been there. It's tripled in size, a massive influx from rural to, yeah. to urban living. Um, so. But the economy really can't sustain that kind of growth. So the poverty has deepened and many of these youngsters are pushed out onto the streets mm-hmm. by their families initially to work cleaning 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 windscreens on the streets to earn a few cents or or shining shoes or selling newspapers or you'll get the little ones just with a rag that will try and just wipe your wing mirror while you're a, a red light or uh, even sing a song because they mm-hmm. actually can't do anything other than stand at your, your your car window and sing for a few cents and uh, a lot of it is a lot of the youngsters don't really get the opportunity because there's adults doing the same and so they mm-hmm. fight for control of a specific red light and the bigger they are the, the more they win the right to, to control that junction so the youngsters finish up living in the drains with less and less uh, to to eat and less and less resources in clothing and everything else so, and when you speak about drains they're open they're big open storm drains because it's tropical climate. You have these massive wide ditches and with bridges over them and they live in the mm-hmm. culverts up under the bridges and and some of them are literally in the tunnels underneath a roundabout or something in the centre of the city and yeah. Now to give people a visual, this is a imagine big city but third world conditions, right? Yeah, I mean, the centre of the city is is more and more developed and the, the poverty is very much pushed to the outside because the city doesn't really have a limit as far as um, growth because it's flat plains. Uh, there's just one side where there's a river, but they've actually got bridges going over there now, but that's for the exclusive rich people. Uh, the other side of the city is just growing out and uh, most of the poverty, if you come into the city and you're within two or three miles of the centre, you won't see much of the poverty other than the kids on the streets. You've got to literally drive out to the east or southeast of the city and see 
you know, the the shacks and the, the, something like 40% of the population still don't have electricity or running water in their homes. But you don't see it unless you physically drive out to that area of the city. So, mm-hmm. And the tourists don't go out that way? No, no. <laughs> not at all. No, no. It's always hard for us in the United States because we see the um, infomercials with the children with flies crawling around their face and everything. And so you think of poverty as maybe that, and then you think of poverty in America as being like on food stamps and coming from an abusive home. But it's hard to imagine those in-betweens where it's a country that looks like it's developing and it's had success, and yet there's still so much poverty and no infrastructure to help the at-risk youth that you're working with yeah yeah there's no government help really i mean there's a social services department that require us to register and to fill their offices with paperwork and (laughs) to be able to function they'll give a certificate saying yes you you can function and they'll come and inspect us a couple of times a year and make sure okay but there's no offer of any help or resources to to be able to do the work so Mm -hmm. we function on voluntary donations entirely and uh, yeah it's been amazing to see how the Lord has provided for that over the years and still does and uh, it's challenging as it always is but uh, the Lord has been amazingly faithful to kind of support us as a family and our kids who all went through college here in the States and and then and also, you know, to to have um, basically four homes and a reception house functioning in Santa Cruz, plus street work and and professionals that work with us as well. So, so yeah. how does it work from somebody, a teenager, decide to come off the streets? How does the whole process work? Well, we have street team, a street team working on the streets three or four times a week. They'll go out and they hit specific parts of of the central area of the city that's where we focus because they're the ones that are are more vulnerable to prostitution especially the girls and and um, crime and everything else and the drugs so they go out and they spend time sharing with the youngsters sometimes they'll buy them breakfast if we're out early enough and sit and just share with them and encourage them to take that decision to come off the streets and when they get to the point of building a relationship to the point at which a youngster says, yeah, I'll come in, then we kind of test that maybe for a few days, make them come to a few appointments with our staff, and then we'll take them in. And they'll come into our reception house where they'll spend five days. And it's a time of orientation, so they get to know us, we get to know them, we get them checked out medically, our social worker can find out, hopefully, their social history, their family background, Uh, the psychologist will do a a psychological profile on them to see what kind of traumas they've got in their past and and where they're at and the preparation for them moving into the home. At the end of those five days, they still get the choice as to whether or not they come into the home. It needs to be their choice. Mm -hmm. Um, sadly, probably somebody like 40% of them don't come in initially the first time. They'd rather live on the street. They, yeah. We had one just this last week who got to Thursday, and that was it. So they get, they get washed up, cleaned up, get a couple good meals in their stomach, yep. and they're like, oh, I'm good. Yeah. And they decide that the drugs or whatever it is that pulls them back to the streets, yeah, <clears> I'm, not, I'm not ready. So they leave. 
But the others that do come in, they then come into what we call one of our two restoration homes, one for girls, one for boys. And then once they're there, they can be there until they finish high school. They're welcome to be there. They don't always stay the first time, very often not. Um, uh, but they're welcome to be there till they finish high school. Sometimes that may be beyond 18 years old because they may have lost several years of education on the streets. We uh-huh. we do try and accelerate their education. There are some programs in Bolivia where they can do two years in one uh, um, at night school and things like that. So they get placed in the but, public uh, school system in Bolivia? Yeah. Okay. For the first two years, they're in the public school system. Then if they're getting good grades and they're good behaviour in the homes, we give them the opportunity of going to a, a private Christian school, uh, a Baptist school, in the in the town between the two homes because the two homes are situated outside the city. How far? Um, the girls' home is um, seventeen miles, and the boys' home twenty-two miles outside. To get to school every day. Sorry, so, no, no. Well, there, there's a town oh, okay. between the two oh, okay. homes where they go in. It's a town. Gotcha. It's a rural town outside the okay. city. Uh, having them physically away from their the city helps. The, the physical, physical distance, barrier. Yeah. yeah, the physical distance from, from their old life helps initially. They so. know they can't just walk out the door and um, become who they back. were again. Yeah, yeah, it takes a bit of effort. <laughs> <laughs> Teenagers yeah. are good with effort. Uh, yeah. Well, some of them are. I mean, the girls' home is quite a long way off the, the main yeah. road as well, so it requires a little more effort. Um, the boys can walk out the gate and get on the bus. But. That kind of opens up what was going to be my next question, which is how is the... You mentioned that it's a Baptist school. How is the local churches helping your ministry along, or are they, aren't they? Well, all our staff are obviously recruited from local churches. Um, They're all Bolivian staff we have there, including the professionals that we have on staff. We have two psychologists and a social worker and two teachers, uh, as well as what we call the educators within the home that, that cover the shifts within the homes. Uh, so the church um, traditionally wasn't very engaged uh, with social issues in Bolivia. It was very much, um, yeah, what the uh, what the Catholic Church did, but the Evangelical Church didn't many years ago. But the Evangelical Church is beginning to wake up to the idea that it needs to get involved. Okay. Um, and which has been quite nice in the time that we've been there that we now get some people that are really committed to this kind of ministry and on our staff we have an amazing leadership team there that just have the same kind of passion that we we had when we first went down there and it's just great to see them you know I can be sitting here talking to you guys and I know that everything's going to be great down there as well because they've got the same calling and same passion and they're all these kids transformed they're all local Bolivians or South American. They're all local Bolivians. Local we were Bolivians, joking yeah. earlier that you're the only white guy in your team, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we, do have, we have a couple from England at the moment who are oh, just yeah. kind of okay. medium term. They've right. come down for a year and maybe we'll commit to another one. We have a, a German girl who's just with us for two months and a, mm-hmm. a girl from Tennessee at the moment who's with okay. us for a month. So, so you do have interns so we have, in yeah, yeah, we have volunteers that come down. But the, the, yeah, the core group is Bolivian. Yeah, because the video um, you showed me right before we recorded to catch we'll, me up we'll to speed. And we'll post the video with the... Um, oh, that would be sweet. Oh, no, we won't. No, we won't. Sorry, we, sorry, we can't. Legal reasons Due with to Bolivian minors. laws, yeah. Yeah, we sorry. Oh, yeah. We talked about that yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> oh, be nice to, but yeah. yeah, sadly we're not. Anyway, Post the website. Yeah. The video, yeah. the video I saw that was cool um, featured um, Spanish dialogue, interviews with uh, children that had grown up 
living with you guys and being transformed by it. And it was really awesome to see that versus, I guess, some of the missionary videos where I've seen before where it's um, typical white American with hair products standing up and saying, hey, we're going here to do something wonderful. And um, rather than just gather up salvation, like, hand-ins, you know, like, hey, yeah, you know, we got 34 saved. You guys are going to bring life and life to the full, which leads me into, like, the the mantra of your ministry, the passage that you've said uh, earlier was really meaningful to you. It was John ten ten, yeah. um, and you you have it in Spanish. Do you I do, yeah, yeah. Yo he venido para que tengan vida, vida en abundancia. John ten ten. I came that they may have life and have it to the full. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's been really uh, the heart of, of what we mm-hmm. want to offer. We want to. Offer quality over quantity. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the people who ask us how many kids have been saved this year are kind of, uh, oh, well, maybe one or two, <laughs> but we've probably influenced 50 or 60 and sown seeds in many, many lives. And mm-hmm. it's been quite interesting, actually. There's another ministry that's just come down to Bolivia that's working on the streets at the moment. And I was sharing with, with Lily, one of the girls who works with this ministry, and she said, when I'm on the streets working with these kids, I can always tell which kids have been in your homes because they're different. And there's something about them there. The way they relate to people is different. And and that's what I always encourage our staff with. And, you know, Even though they leave, the seeds that we've sown very often will give fruit sometime yeah. in the future and, and very often do. Um, we don't always see them come through the process that we would like to see. Mm-hmm. Um because even beyond what we've talked about with the restoration homes, we have what we call our reintegration homes as well, where they uh, they have three to five years of, of um, supported living while they go to university or technical school. So, so you've you've seen kids come off the streets and come all the way through and graduate college, yeah, or technical yeah. school. That so they've come mm-hmm. from a drug addicted young kid eight to whatever years old mm-hmm. and now are productive members of society engineers yeah international relations civil engineer is our next one will be coming out at the end of this oh. year so yeah it's kind of putting you on the spot and you haven't none of these have been written down so everything he's fielded or answered <laughs> has been totally impromptu yeah, so that's fine. um the question i have is is there one real strong success story that stands out in your mind that on the rough days or when funding isn't coming in or like you told me about an exchange rate thing that had happened recently where the yeah the the brexit situation (laughs) which we won't go political but the brexit situation just dropped you 20 percent 20 percent overnight yeah so you know when times get tough when financially it's difficult to raise support what are the what's one story that just keeps you going I just think I don't know there's one I think there's many and uh, but I always talk about very specific kids I mean one of the guys you saw on the video um I can say a name because you're not going to see the video but his name's Arturo uh, Arthur that would be and and he's he's a second generation uh, he came in when he was 8 years old he's now 20 um so he's been with us 12 years 
He's studying in technical school at the moment. He's doing great. He has a wonderful relationship with the Lord, and he's he's a, he's a gentleman. I mean, he's just such a nice guy, you know. And he, he, you can just see that transformation that's happened in his life. And when he first came in, he was in for a year, and his mother came and took him out of the home for a while. She oh, did all, yeah, and. He, I've never seen a kid so distraught in my life as this kid when, when uh, eight and a half, nine years old, when his mum came to pick him up and he didn't want to go. So he was on the streets and then she found out he was in the home and... No, she knew he was there, but for some reason she was, she figured she wanted to have him back out and, and it was just, it was sad because he was back out on the streets literally within a day. So she took him out of the homes and then he was right back living on on the streets again. He was there for about eight months before we worked with mum and him again to get him back in. And then once he came in again, he stayed and and he's doing great. He's a superb example of, of how the Lord can transform a life Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, he's doing really, really well. So much of this is just worlds apart for us in rural Midwest Michigan. But question, yeah. <laughs> the parents, um, you know, we're talking about a lot of children and being from a very conservative area, Midwest Michigan, it's really hard to imagine parents that would throw their children out on the street. Yeah. But like, what is... What is the problems in the home? Is it the drugs and the alcohol that the home becomes unhabitable? Or do they lose their homes and the whole family's on the street? Uh, generally, it's it's economic. It's the poverty issue that pushes them onto, onto the streets to start with. Very much boys get pushed out earlier uh, and more often than girls because girls are kept home to help mum with younger siblings. A typical model... In Bolivia, with in in the poorer end of society, is that you finish up with single mums with five or six children from three, two or three fathers, and then she's on her own. Marriage doesn't happen much. Guys move from one to another, um, and you know once they they're fed up with one woman, they move on to another one and leave this trail of kids behind them and the, and the women are the ones that are bringing these kids up on their own and so they cannot support that number of kids they, so the older ones finished up getting pushed finish up getting pushed out to work and contribute to that that uh, that home and then another stepdad will come in or something and and the then that doesn't, doesn't function the kid the kid eventually doesn't go home because if he does everything he earns is just going to get taken off him and mm-hmm. and kind of drunk away probably by the ne- the next stepfather that's come into the house and um yeah so they just don't go home anymore so they create their own communities on the streets and and fend for themselves and it's very much survival of the fittest and it's a very abusive hierarchy after a while especially if you get adults involved with the drugs and things like that trying to pull some of these kids out of there is pretty difficult because they're under a very firm control uh, of adult addicts they're kind of owned by to pay up the line yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Um, so it can be certain parts of the city are pretty dangerous for actually getting in you've got to go in in a group daytime and, and be pretty certain of what you want to do but there's other younger ones that haven't got into that yet that we work with quite a lot as well the longer they've been on the streets we, we've always recognized the longer they've been on the streets the tougher it is 
to to get the streets out of the kid in a sense. Yeah. Um, bringing in sixteen and seventeen year olds that have been out for six, seven, eight years on the streets, it's very very tough for them to to change. Um, so yeah, but we still take them in and we still try. This last this guy last week was seventeen years old, been on the streets since he was eight years old. And uh, yeah, he didn't make it first time, but the the thing is that our team will continue to work with them, or they'll still be out there. The cut off time for us, sadly, we have to put a cut off, and that's 18th birthday. Once they're 18, they don't have that opportunity with us anymore. But we'll also try and get them into an adult rehab. So, it's because you have a policy where they can leave a hundred times and come back for the hundred and first time. Yeah, it's quite interesting because the kids themselves always think it's three strikes and you're out. (laughs) They kind of manage that (laughs) amongst themselves. So we won't tell them that. Well, no, but they've kind of noticed that it's not necessarily like that, but they still question. I remember one of our girls a couple of, yeah, about 18 months ago, we'd had a girl come in with a baby and she'd been in several times. And she ran off with the baby, and we chased her down, and we found her, and we, because we, we didn't want the baby back on the streets, obviously. And and Giovanna, who you saw on the video there, got the baby, and from mum, and was hanging on to the baby, and the mum was trying to get the baby back, and we said, well, the way you get your baby back is you come back to the home, and if you want to leave the home, you you don't leave with your baby. This baby was like four months old, and. She came back. How old was the mother? The mother was 16 at the time. She came back and she stayed. Well, one of the other girls, when when we brought the girl and the baby back, she just came to me. She said, can I talk to you? I said, sure. She said, why do you keep bringing them back when they don't want to come? (laughs) (laughs) I said, because we have an open door, the same as we've had an open door for you for the last 10 years you've been with us. It's open to all these other girls as well. I said, oh, I don't understand. And, you know, he said, well, it's called unconditional love. Mm-hmm. And that's what God wants to show to these kids the same as he has to you for all these years. And he's like, oh, right. You know, and and that's a strong picture of love, like the mother trying to take the child to the streets where you know it will be either abandoned and dead, yeah, yeah. like that's in a short cool. amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you guys love too much to allow that happen to happen so some people listening in america might feel like well freedom you know if they don't want it let them go but no love is strong Mm -hmm. and the way that you guys pursued and Mm -hmm. intervened is remarkable well that's part of what we have to do because of that that struggle they have to come off the streets Mm -hmm. the the pursuit is is a permanent thing of, of what we're doing and we have a team. I say, Yovana's in charge of our street team, mm-hmm. and she's incredible. I mean, she'll be down in those drains every day. She'll be, she'll be, you know, telling me about this kid, that kid, whatever, and, and how close they are to taking a decision. She has them all kind of taped of how, how when's this one's so going to cool. be ready about then and about here and about there, and, and we try and have that constant stream of kids coming in, but they don't always turn up. So it's a very uncertain future. We had a young girl. 13 pregnant uh, who was with us since January and she she left after she left about three weeks ago but thankfully she only left for three days and then came back and she's back for now but we'll see 
Yeah, how she does. She's six months pregnant at the moment. So, how many of the um, young ladies that come <coughs> in have children? Uh, over the last, I'm trying to think how long the home's been open. Now we've had Elad uh, Farido, where it is now, has been open since 2004, so 14 years. So overall, we haven't had more than about half a dozen girls that probably have had children, but. Having talked to our, our leadership team and Yovana especially about the work on the streets, we're seeing more and more of these young girls pregnant. On the streets uh, on and giving street. birth on the streets yeah, and, and raising a child. And dying, babies dying on the streets very often. Yeah, because yeah, how are they, they going to provide? Well, they can't. The and that, yeah. That's one of the big problems. They, they're, they're not well enough, they're not fed well enough to breastfeed. And, you know, the famous brands of uh you know canned uh baby milk is way beyond anything they can afford so they finish up feeding them rice water because it looks like milk but i mean it has no nutritional value whatsoever other than carb and water and it's yeah. it so the babies die of malnutrition absolutely and that's very common um so yeah it's it's tough but I say your runner's out there all the time and she keeps going and she chases them down. She's in her own time, weekends, night, any time she's out there when she's needed and or if they call or whatever, she's there for them. And they know that. Um, and when they take that decision, we're there and we, we set up the house within an hour um, with a big welcome sign with their name and everything. And we... The first day they're in, they give up every all their clothing, everything they have with them. They have a shower, they have a haircut, they 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 get all cleaned up, clean set, complete new set of clothes and everything. And we try and bring in that kind of ethos of a new birth and a new start, a new beginning, mm-hmm. uh, so that they're leaving the old behind and, and get them to try and understand that this is a, is a huge opportunity. It's, it's almost kind of like so. the, the parable of the the lost sheep, and as he co- brings the lost sheep home, this. He does a big celebration. It's not. Mm-hmm. There's no like punishment for what was done in the past. It's this celebration of, hey, you're back, you're home. Yeah, and that, that's what we try and do. The celebration in the in the reception home because yeah. we only have one or two mm-hmm. kids at any time there, and we also try and implement the 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 whole idea of the prodigal son when they come back as well. Because I don't know if you can imagine. If you have been a staff member in a home and you've been working with a, a girl, 13, 14 years old, you've been working with them for three years in that home, investing your heart and soul into that, that kid, and they leave for no apparent reason. That would be hard. They just walk out. That'd be yeah. so... And yeah. Defeating. How, 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 oh, would you, how would you feel if that kid wanted to come back? I don't handle that kind of rejection <laughs> to begin with, you know. But you always want that oh vengeance. That, that, well, well, you're, you're not coming yeah. back. That but, you, I mean, you wronged me. Yeah. Our, our humanity says, yeah. punish them yeah. Yeah. when they come yeah. back. That they're going to be biblically, see what you did to your life while you were gone. Yeah. yeah. Biblically, so, you, oh, we have to go through this thing with our staff and say, what, what do we see? What would Jesus do? The father's heart in the story of the prodigal son is where he brought, he ran out to him. Mm-hmm. He didn't wait for him to come. And he restored him before he even had the opportunity to express his repentance. Uh-huh. And it's just something that we have to reteach and reteach and uh, uh-huh. celebrate their return, not because they made 
a dumb decision to leave to punish that, but actually to celebrate the good decision that they've come back. Mm-hmm. And our, like you said, our humanity wants not to do that. It wants to fight mm-hmm. that. It wants to say, well, no, you got to wait a couple more days then, or I'm going to punish you in some form. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, they want consequences. You know, you're going to yeah. wash dishes for the first week or no. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And that also removes the idea that they're earning it back as well. Yeah, but you—I mean, it hurts. I mean, it oh, does no, hurt. You yeah, can't—you can't get away yeah, from yeah. the hurt that when a kid leaves like that, you're just mm-hmm. like, wow, and and it is tough. And I mean, we it had would be hard young to not girl. be chasing them out the door and mm. saying I mean, we, you can't yeah. leave. And well, we try and do everything yeah. we can to stop them leaving. I mean, if mm-hmm. we know yeah. that they're they're planning on leaving, because sometimes if they're honest enough, they'll actually tell us. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going, and we spend. Yeah, half a day with kind of our crisis team that we pull together to try and get them to stay but it doesn't always work and they still leave um, but it's tough when you see what they go through when they're out I mean, we had a girl a couple of years ago who did exactly that and she went through unbelievable suffering for about five months we were in touch with her most of the time but we, it took us five months to convince her to come back and she came back pregnant 16 years old and she'd been through all sorts of abuses and all sorts of stuff in that time which was heartbreaking but when she came back we celebrated the return she's still with us now and she's doing pretty well and we're hoping she's going to stick it this time so but we'd been three years working with her before she left you know you guys really chose like the muddy trenches of missionary work <laughs> as opposed to like the flashbang type missionary work where you show up with the white Jesus and sell the gospel or hell as your alternatives and then but you guys are dealing with heaven and hell on a daily basis in the form of this reality, this space and time. You're seeing hell and you're delivering rescuing people from the flames on a daily basis trying to do it's yeah it's really it's it's really encouraging to hear that because it's easy to point at missionary work and be like oh well that's just people that want to see the world or that's just um i think that there's been cynicism for missionary work in the church Mm. where people feel like ah just stick to your local community, do something there and so less and fewer and fewer churches are supporting missionaries Mm. and Part of that is because they want to keep the money at home, but part of it is people just don't buy into something that is another world away as easily as they used to, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, I can understand it. I mean, we've obviously had a lot of contact with the missionary community within Santa Cruz in Bolivia, Mm -hmm. and yeah, I can understand why there would be some (laughs) resistance to support some of that. Yeah, I won't say any more. Right. Well, I think flashbang makes a point because it's like they come in, they all of a sudden tell people that there's this heaven and hell where you're going to burn forever, um, Mm -hmm. get saved. But are they integrating them into society like you guys are? Are they, you know, what is what is salvation if it just leaves them to die? Mm -hmm. And I don't, you know, that's what's hard is I think people want to give to things that make a difference like your ministry Mm. and um creating that awareness it's got to be hard it's got to be difficult Mm -hmm. to say hey i know you've heard about missionaries that live in a castle (laughs) while others are starving outside their gates and 
I mean, that's a reality in many places of the world. But to get in and do the work of rebuilding God's kingdom and inviting people into it is very honorable. But it's a, it's a restoration of life, not just the yeah. soul. Yeah. It's like you yeah. said, taking a, chi- a child who's been an, a drug addict and seeing the 18 or 12 years of work in, invested in till they're graduating college mm-hmm. and becoming a fruitful member of society. And then pro- do they give back? I mean, do they have the people who after a while, after they leave, come return and help? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the original girls we had come through our, our girls' home back in '94. She first came to us when we first had a girls' home, and and she worked for us full time for about three years. And she's worked in other ministries in in Tarija, and she's working in another rehab, uh, adult rehab now as a cook. And and she's yeah, given back a lot. And we've had uh, one of our first graduates that. Graduated high school back in 2007, who's um, an environmental engineer. When he doesn't have work, he comes back and volunteers with us. You know, he's in the boys' home and encouraging the boys to to stick at it and, and you know, Showing sharing the with hope. them. Yeah, sharing showing the hope where they can get to. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, so, yeah, he, he comes back regularly to, to help out. And, yeah. So, always the awkward question then what does it cost to run? Four homes. How many people on staff? Uh, we have an average of about twenty-two. Twenty-two on people on staff monthly. What does that look like? At the moment, we're looking at around about seventeen and a half, eighteen thousand dollars a month. A month. Which, and that includes paid staff. Yeah. Food. Yeah. That's everything. 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 Seventeen and a half thousand dollars. Yeah. For twenty-two people to work. Mm-hmm. Kids in the homes. Yeah. Money goes a lot further. It goes a lot, a lot further. further. That seems easy. Like, <laughs> well, the average salary there is three hundred and fifty a month. So you know you're not talking about <laughs> you're not talking about big bucks. So the people to support a worker. So for three hundred and fifty dollars a month, somebody could bring another person on full time to your staff. Yeah. And you're and talking a, professionals as well. Yeah. Not just no, no. a cook. You're talking and you, about. Uh, and you can bring a child in. For their basic costs for a child is a, is one hundred and fifty dollars a month, which will feed them, clothe them, um, educate, roof, education, healthcare for one hundred and fifty a month. Gives them everything they need. So, yes, it's a slightly different economy. It's changed. Yeah. It's gone up quite considerably in the last few years down there. But uh, but yeah, it's still. I can't imagine what it would cost here. I often wonder. <laughs> um, a little bit more than 20, that. 22 stars. Yeah. Maybe 17,000 a yeah. person. So we've had listeners from the UK. Yeah. We've had listeners from Canada. Russia. We've Plenty. had one Russian bot. That was a Russian bot. <laughs> I'm not convinced anybody in Russia knows we exist. Um, Bolivia, that's probably you guys, right? And you guys tune it's into been our my podcast? Think, yeah, I think okay. it's... Yeah. Um, and then, obviously, the U.S., um, probably localized U.S., like a lot of Michigan. Where Palo Alto, yeah. for some reason. <laughs> so we have we have some listeners around, um, and we'll find a way. So we can't share the video, but we can post his The website. website. We can post the yeah. website yeah. that has okay. all the information if they want to support a child or mm-hmm. support a hmm. A yeah, worker? Yeah, yeah. There's, yeah, there's links to donations, yeah. there's links to 
what we do, how it fits together. It's not a very professionally put together website because I did it. So. <laughs> well, that's what, that's what some people don't but understand. But it's functional. Mission, missionaries are not only missionaries, yeah. they're web designers as yeah. well, graphic designers. Yeah, the moment but, you said that, that made so much sense because here you are, again, you're not the flashbang missionary. You're in the trenches doing the work, mm-hmm. and if the work is building a website one day, you're doing it. Yeah. That's awesome. Learning HTML5, wasn't it? Or, no, no, WordPress. Okay. WordPress. No. <laughs> <laughs> so if anybody wants to donate free WordPress advice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... So do you have any other questions? Oh, or, so many, but uh, how, how long have we We're been at 48 going? minutes. I couldn't see the screen. I'm not sitting where I usually sit, but 48 minutes. We've been going a bit. I would say um, if I was going to ask one more question, it would be um, – Jeez, you go first. Awkward. Oh, I, 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 why did you drag <laughs> us all the way? No, um, no. It, it's it's the question of how how what's the plan for maintenance once you you're not a young spring chicken anymore. You're no trying offense. to tell me no I'm offense. old, don't you? Okay. Um, <laughs> but the, but the idea that you've established a core of locals to run mm-hmm. everything means that the westerner can leave and it will still. The, the structures there, the finances are what are what what will be hard. Yeah, I mean that's the challenge is is maintaining the link between the the support uh, for the ministry and uh, and the ministry itself. So we're we're on we're on what we call a succession plan. Yeah, where you know your mum and I will be. Uh, around for another five years or so pretty much full-time um awareness raising and so on but we're looking to find uh, one or two couples or some other people that are called to to be the link between what happens there and and the resources that we need from the first world to keep it functioning financially uh, so we're working on that, and we have a couple down there at the moment that may be part of that plan. They're not sure yet. They're, they've come down with a one-year commitment, and are probably going to commit to another year. Um, but we're open to you know several couples or singles or whoever has that kind of passion to see this kind of work carry on, develop, and grow into yeah. the future to, to get on board. So, uh-huh. yeah. so I have a question. I have so many questions because I'm very curious, but I had to narrow it down to one because we are getting up there in time. You can ask some questions afterwards as well. I will. Yeah. I will. <laughs> um, if for any of our listeners that have considered or would like to go into missions work, what would be your advice? You're 28 years into missionary work now. Um, essentially, like Paul said, a lifetime, although you've still got plenty of life left. So what, (laughs) you're welcome. Sounds going to be so cruel. Um, What would you say to someone that has maybe been on the edge about it? They feel a calling. They feel like they should investigate, but they haven't. What encouragement would you give? I would say because of the, the facility of traveling these days, go. Short term, go for a month, go for six weeks and see. Go and see what it's like, see how it feels. Um, travel is cheap 
really these days compared to what it used to be. We're still paying the same price for tickets now to Bolivia that we were paying 28 years ago. So in real terms, <laughs> it's really cow. cheap. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it is. It's crazy. Yeah. So it's not expensive, and especially in in a first world economy, to to get a ticket and go somewhere is not that difficult. And I would always say go test it out. Well, I mean, we did it with a family. We did it for a year mm-hmm. um, because obviously. You know, a family with three kids and that were seven, five, and three at the time <laughs> to go just for a month or whatever was crazy. So we went for a year. But if you're young, single, and a bit more flexible than we were at that time, or even if you're just a couple that were, are interested, come, come down or go and investigate what you feel God's put on your heart. Um, and that's what we advise everybody who, who want, wants to investigate a long-term calling: mm-hmm. go short-term just to get a taste. And the Lord is going to confirm to you whether or not that's where you're to be. We've had people come down who were convinced it was their calling, came down, they were there a week, and they said, oh, not for me. <laughs> Can't drink the water. <laughs> well, um, and we've had others that have come yeah. down with no intention of getting involved and gone, wow, yeah, I could be part of this. And so, yeah, take that step. Don't be scared. It's, it's There's nothing to be scared of. I mean, people are scared of the unknown, I think. And we've been down there 28 years, and it, it's home to us. Mm-hmm. Um, I always say there's only, when you travel, there's only two things you miss. People and foods. I can live <laughs> anywhere. Yeah, I've decided I could live anywhere. So it's only the people and, and your favorite foods are the only things you ever miss. But we're capable of adapting, and we're very adaptable creatures, as, mm-hmm. as, as especially as Christians. We need to be, I think, in this world. Mm-hmm. So. And your children all live elsewhere, right? Well, yeah, I got one here. I, I know yeah, about yeah, Paul. Him, yeah. <laughs> the, the two girls are in Illinois, okay, as well. So we two sisters and me, which yeah. is why your stateside is just visiting friends, family, and yeah. Well, and we've had uh, several supporting churches in the states mm-hmm. now. That we've. Uh, yeah, we've had some American volunteers yeah. that have been down with us. And mm-hmm. So, yeah. And we're preparing which, to, yeah. Yeah, we're preparing to take our, our, a team down there in June 2019. Yep. Yeah. From the Congregational Church. So if Church you do want to give locally, you can bring your money in bag form or <laughs> bag, check form. Check form or <laughs> to soda cans. First Congregational <laughs> Church in Belding, Michigan. Yeah. And it will make um, it there. Yeah. That'd be great. A group of young people that will come down and be with us for about a week, ten days, yeah. uh, to experience a little of what God is doing down there with these youngsters. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that if we have teams that come down, young teams, especially from high schools or student teams, it changes their lives. It transforms their lives and also gives them a heart for missions for the future. Whether it's going or whether it's giving or whatever, then they have a heart for missions because, and they also begin to appreciate what they have here yeah. <laughs> in comparison yeah. to what our youngsters have there. So it's uh, it's a win-win all around. So yeah, awesome. All right, yeah. I think we're going to wrap this up. So Dan has been drinking something different and unique today. Yeah, this was brewed in Chicago. This is Revolution Brewing Antihero India Pale Ale. And honestly, when you add enough hops to a beer, they all become similar. I wouldn't go so far as to say they're all the same, but it was a very solid IPA. So if you're an IPA fan, it was on par with some of the greats. And I went with my British roots this time and had the Newcastle Brown Ale imported all the way from England. It was actually bottled in England as well 
and Tadcaster. I think I'm pronouncing that right. So, um, yeah, it's a brown ale. Decent? It's decent. It's, um, I, if you're looking for something low alcohol content that you can consume more than one of, this might be it. But no, it was good. I'm good. So, um, thank you for listening to us again. And thank you to our guest, Roger, today. I don't get to call him by his first name too often. So, um, we'll be posting links later on for his website and everything if you want to find out more. So, we will catch you guys later.